Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, wealth strategist at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson, we are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. Live from the Nasdaq market site overlooking New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. I'm Melissa Lee. Tonight's trader lineup, Tim Seymour, Guy Dami, Dan Nathan, and Brian Kelly ahead on Fast. Nike just does it. Shares jumping after the company's latest earnings report. We're dialed into the call. We'll bring you all the details. Plus, the C-suite at Disney, not exactly the happiest place on earth. There's a rift in the relationship between former CEO Bob Iger and the man who replaced him, Bob Chapek. And beyond the frosty relationship, the moves by the new boss have been getting a cold shoulder on Wall Street inside Disney's rocky ride straight ahead. And later, another headbanging day for the metals and the miners. The XME, the ETF that tracks the sector, up for the fifth straight day, hitting its highest level in over a decade. Tim and BK ready to rock out on that heavy metal trade. But we start off with Jerome Powell sounding the alarm on inflation. The Fed chair admitting the central bank has widely underestimated the rise in prices and suggesting even more aggressive rate hikes than he just laid out last week. His comments said markets on a roller coaster ride this afternoon. The S&P sank nearly a percent immediately. Immediately after Powell spoke. And despite a late day comeback, end of the day with its first loss in five sessions. So, will this more hawkish tone put a permanent end to last week's rally? It was how many days? It wasn't even a week ago. Four. It was four days ago, including a weekend. Yes. Including a weekend. So, what they, happened? They were talking. What happened, Tim? Well, I, I think. What we heard from Bullard last week and, and I think on Friday he said, hey, why is it we have to hear this now when in September there was no sign of inflation and they're telling us about 50 now? And these were the first real comments after the Powell press conference. And, and look, I, you get the sense that the Fed is it's not just concerned about inflation, but really understands that there are structural issues in this inflation. So if you look at the curve, uh, it was actually the short end that outperformed and, and, and took over from where we zigzagged a bit on Wednesday of the Fed meeting. You're up 19 points, 19 basis points on the short end of the curve. Market did a lot of pricing in today. And as we, we just heard on Scott's show, I mean, there, there are people that kind of believe 50 is the status quo, but the long end, Treasury rates are breaking out. It's not great for equities. I will say, I, I thought stocks were champs today on a day when after, you know, an 11% rally in the NASDAQ off of last Monday's low and Powell, Powell dropping this bomb on you. Great job by equities. Especially because it wasn't just one 50 basis point hike. I mean, it sounded like he was opening the door to a couple of 50 basis points. There's nothing to prevent the Fed. I'm paraphrasing, but nothing to prevent the Fed from multiple 50 basis point hikes. So they're finally on the right track without question. And Tim is spot on. We play a lot of games on the show, as you oh, know. So many. And one of the games is if you had told me 24 hours ago, Mel, oh, what yeah. would one happen? Of our favorites. That's one of my personal Mine favorites. Too. No, not it's not. You're game. lying like a rug. But I got to tell you something. Given the rally we saw last week that Tim just alluded to, if you had told me those comments were to come out around 1245, BK was watching them as we were on our call. I'd be like, easy the S&P's down 80 handles, given what we saw last week in that rally. And at one point, the S&P was down, what, 25, 30 handles, and told rallied back about 35 handles. It's a remarkable the day. Now, we could say that the bond market is pricing this all right. in, but I'm here to tell you there's no way 
the equity market is and volatility was down uh, again in, in a world where I've always said more Fed equals more mm-hmm. volatility. I don't right. you know, feel very uh, uh, rewarded by that statement right now. So what do we need to do? And I use we, I guess, like the royal we or we is in the markets. We, Brian Kelly. I mean, if, if we are to believe that 50 basis points, even maybe more than 50 basis points can happen to the next couple of meetings. What do we need to price in at this point? What is not priced in? Uh, well, there's a couple things not priced in. Number one is earnings downgrades, right? We haven't seen really any earnings downgrades from, uh, from anybody uh, out there. That would be a shock to the market. And then number two, this is going to sound a little strange, but if you go further out on the curve to two or three years, you're actually starting to see the market price in rate cuts. And I think that's what's buoying stocks because analysts are saying, hey, listen, Fed's going to raise rates by 50 basis points, 100 basis points. It's going to be short and sharp. You're going to crush inflation. Yeah, we might have a quarter or two of a growth scare. But after that, it's clear sailing. So what we need to price in is actually the Fed raising rates for a longer period of time before the equity market says, hey, this is a problem. To me right now, though, the bond market, you know, short the bond market's the easiest trade. Long dollar, short bonds. You guys can all trade your equities. I'd rather trade those. (laughs) Dan, what's your take? Yeah, I just tell you this. In in my career, um, when we've had surprise moves by the Fed, either, you know, cutting because they're worried about some sort of shock to the system or in the instance of maybe um, a surprise rate hike, the market, the stock market usually does the opposite of what they intended to do. So I don't think stock market investors are really braced particularly well for any sort of big surprises. I think that you made the point, Mel, that, you know, last week we heard from Powell and then today we hear from Powell and they don't seem to like the kind of ratcheting up of the hawkish sort of sentiment. And to Tim's point, fine. Yeah, stocks acted pretty well today in the face of that. But if there are any surprise hikes here, I think the knee-jerk reaction is lower. And then BK mentioned the one thing that the equity market participants don't seem to be kind of focused on right here is that current consensus for S&P 500 earnings this year are expected to be up eight and a half, nine 9% year over year. That's just not happening. That's taking us back to that PPI reading that you're seeing in Germany right now. And I don't care. I know we're going to talk about um, Nike in a few minutes here. I don't care what they just printed on this backward-looking quarter. I want to hear about the visibility they have going forward here. And I don't think it's going to be particularly great. I don't mean to sound so dire about this, but it really does seem like a lot of analysts right now are kind of whistling past the graveyard here. This is not going to set up to be the 2022 earnings per share year for the S&P 500 that most strategists had just three months ago. Not sure that a lot of strategists, a lot of analysts have priced in a a major slowdown in Europe, a major price spike in Europe. And we we showed the it is not too often on Fast Money when we talk about German PPI, but 25.9 percent is an eye catcher. And of course, that's a leading indicator for consumer price spikes to come. And this, by the way, has not factored in the impact, the inflationary impact from the from the Russian Ukraine conflict. And that is the problem. So what are we we haven't priced in a whole lot to. where 45 percent of German gas is, is coming from mm-hmm. the east. And, and it, it, it look, if you look at Germany, if you look at European stocks, look at the euro stocks, 50. Uh, it actually traded back almost five year levels at, at the lows of last week. So I think European stocks have actually reacted to the downside they've priced in a lot. Look at the 10-year 
bund yield. And again, I'm sure people are not doing this every day when they wake up, but higher rates across Europe certainly are, are good in the short term for their banks. But remember, we were worried about Europe about a decade ago, and that's just something I, I would caution. I, I'd quickly just say, though, uh, you know, Dan said, talked about the bond market. I, I, you know, a two-year at 210, 215, 220, and this gets to what you were saying, Mel, about maybe at some point the market believes that the Fed's going to overshoot and they're starting to price in. BK was saying this, too. I, buy me some two-year uh, at 220. I, I think that's a great trade, and I actually think you're going to be well rewarded for earning the two-year here. You know, it's interesting. We we do talk about Europe once in a while. I mean, Germany, I think, still the fifth largest economy on the planet. When you add together the eurozone, that's the largest economy in the world, and it's 450 million people. We're about 330. It's significant, is my point, and they're clearly slowing down. It will have ramifications here. And talk about the yield curve. We talk about twos, tens flattening. Well, five tens have inverted effectively or now flat. I mean, that's not particularly bullish for equities. And again, you have to ask yourself, to Dan's point about earnings, what's the right multiple in a slowing growth, in my opinion, rising interest rate environment? And I don't think we're anywhere close to where we should be. So then you go back to a big cap technology, Brian Kelly. And do you think that we are in the setup that supports the notion that you want to be in growth that is idiosyncratic? That during a time of economic slowdown here, you want to be in sort of these solid companies that have the growth and have the balance sheets. I mean, I'm not sure that this is that exact same environment. I, I, you know, we're, we're looking at there, there are a lot of risks out there that have not been priced in. And the and the Nasdaq has shown you that the higher rates go, the, the more they trade as a monolith. Right. So that idiosyncratic growth, it might be good for a trade here or there, but I'm not sure that you can stake your entire portfolio on that. Because, you know, as Guy just said, everybody's just talking about Europe slowing down. We already know that China slowed. They're starting to stimulate a bit, so maybe something happens there. But Powell said today they're going to raise rates, and they're going to raise rates above the neutral rate, meaning they are going to slow mm-hmm. the economy down. So the U.S. economy is going to slow. So I don't care if you have a great balance sheet, uh, a fortress balance sheet, whatever people want to say. If the U.S. economy slows... Your earnings are going to go lower, and therefore your stock price goes lower. At least that's well, what you, I was taught. If you can't stake your portfolio on, on these big cap tech companies, then that's just too bad for most Americans out there, unfortunately, Dan, because that's what people have. Yeah, and I, I guess we've had this conversation. You know, when you think about those top five or six names, and they make up close to 25% of the S&P 500, and about half of the NASDAQ or the NDX, the NASDAQ 100, I mean, you know, if you own funds, if you own these ETFs, I mean, you're there. But here's the good news, Mel. They act pretty well. You know, I'm looking at the Dow Jones Industrial Average down 5% on the year, and the S&P 500 down only 6.5% of the year. So it's become a very concentrated trade. Guy talks about all the time, how many different funds and ETFs, all of those big names are in. So we're all in this together. We talk about single names kind of often, and we this shows called Fast Money, and there's been plenty of volatility. If you were nimble and you want to trade, there's lots of money to be made and to be lost here. And what's proving to be true is that the safest place to be is obviously in the spy, in the QQQ, in this sort of volatile environment. So, so I hear you on the we are the world, we are the children, Dan. And, and, but I, I was doing some screening today of where stocks have moved 
after this big move and even with last week's snapback and, and Google jumps off the page. Google times, you know, based upon 22 EPS is trading at a 0.5 peg ratio. So a quick trade school for what is what is a peg ratio? It's price to earnings growth. It's clearly a measure of what you're paying for a company and how much growth is there. And Google, to me, which is one of the largest companies in the world, is absurdly cheap at these levels. Now, if I'm making my list and checking it twice, it's absolutely looking for companies like this. Even in down days, guys smirking over here. I can't wait for this. Um, you know, but this is a place where you are putting that list together. And if you don't own Google, it's very cheap now. It may get cheaper, um, but nobody rings a bell. Do you think if Tim was in that We Are the World video, he wore his vest for it? It's my sense. Maybe I mean, just a vest, guys. Just, just a vest. That would have been. It's a family uh, show, I, gentlemen. Where's Sorry. the Paris Hilton drop? Is that all you have to say, or do you have a trade? No, I don't. I just was visualizing Tim in that video with <laughs> a vest on. can't unsee certain things, so let's not uh, keep talking sorry. about it. We've got an earnings alert here we want to move on to. Nike shares just swooshing higher after its latest report. The company's conference call is underway. Sarah Eisen is listening in. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Melissa. Nike again showing its resilience here in the face of everything going on in the world. Slower global growth, of course, weakness around Europe, potentially in the war in Ukraine, supply chain issues. John Donahoe, the CEO, just kicking off the conference call. He starts as he always starts, naming some of the highlights from the quarter from the sports world, including the Winter Olympics, the fact that a lot of Nike teams are live in the men's and women's March Madness brackets, that sort of stuff that keeps investors excited. As far as the results, two things that were positive surprises that I wanted to flag, digital growth, 19% there. That was better than expected. Also laughing, lapping some tough comparisons from the middle of the pandemic last year. So that was a highlight. Also saw some weakness there on the Adidas quarter recently. Also direct to consumer. This has been Nike's really strong force and its higher profit business where it sells directly through its sneaker app, digital or its stores also growing 15 percent. If you go beneath the surface, some of the worries in terms of the geographies came in pretty much in line. China sales, for instance, at $2 billion, that was what the market was expecting. It's a decline of 5%, but it was out there. North American sales, the key market, up 9%, also coming in line with what was expected. Now, coming into this quarter, the stock was down 22% for the year so far. There was a lot of hand-wringing over issues like supply chain, which has hurt Nike sales in the past. And the company CFO in the earnings release does note that the supply chains are ongoing and, and says that marketplace demand continues to significantly exceed available inventory supply. On that note, inventories were a little bloated. They're up 15 percent from last year. But the company did say consumer demand is helping to offset that. So, Melissa, the key will be from here. What does this company say about the outlook? The, The outlook and the guidance always comes on the earnings call. So I should expect that from the CFO in a few minutes. I'll let you know what they say. But that's going to be key, especially around China, given potential deterioration in the outlook because of the rolling shutdowns around COVID and supply chain and what they're going to say overall, given that we're in a different picture here with global growth than we were just three months ago. So far, it's all been coming in either in line or better than expected. And that's why you see the stock reacting with the sigh of relief. All right, Sarah, keep us posted. Thank you, Sarah Eisen from the NYSC on Nike. So the quarter ended February 28th. uh, So that includes some of the impact that we saw in terms of commodities, supply chain issues, et cetera. But uh, the nuance and the contours, I think, of demand throughout the quarter will be key, Tim. They will. I don't think Nike can have outlook into the end of the year right now. And I think you have to be careful here. But there's no question. We want to hear it. This is what I said. These are the types of headlines we've looked at various times with Nike. It's been a leader. 
Dan's right. You know, we don't know. We know what maybe the Fed is pricing in. We don't want multiple uh, the market's going to put on stocks that are in the face of a different economy as we get into the third quarter. And, and I think we hope Nike can do that. But if you think about DT sales up 17 percent off a really tough comp and think about where we were a year ago when that's all people could do. And in many cases, it is actually a way to deal with lean inventories. You walk into a lot of stores. They don't have the Nike products. Go straight to Nike. Certainly helps margins. Long Nike, but at 36 to 37 times in this environment times next year. Um, be careful. Go back and look at last summer. The stock sold off. It traded, I think, from like the mid-150s down to sort of 148, 150, and then bounced to an all-time high. The 50% retracement of that recent all-time high and this low we just made comes in around 150. And I will tell you, Mel, because I remember like that large animal, that large land animal with it's the like tusks. yes. Rhino, I have a memory like one that Carter Worth was on last week and said exactly this would happen. And we pointed out the opportunity for it to get back to that 148 level. So I think it actually gets there. I think you fade it when it does. 36, 35 forward. Brian Kelly, what does that price in in your view? Tim said be careful. Yeah, well, it, listen, it prices in a consumer that is going to continue to spend and a Federal Reserve and an economy that's going to be that you're going to be OK with. I happen to think that's not right. I happen to think that Powell just told you they do not want the consumer to spend more. That's what demand destruction is all about. But that's probably what's been priced into the stock down from $180. So I'm kind of with Guy on this. Up to 150 you probably fade that. You get a bear market rally here. And yeah. then when people realize that the consumer is not going to hold up, that's when you want to sell this thing again. Yeah, but the consumer is pretty, I mean, they're holding up right now. They've got good balance sheets. They've got jobs. Dan, maybe this is the exact kind of stock you want to be in in this environment. Hey, Mel, what show are you participating in here? I mean, I don't know if you saw where gas at the pump is, where mortgage rates are going, where the Fed is raising rates here and how quickly they're doing it. Wait, Tim, you just eye rolled me. I have return here, buddy. I can see that. <laughs> that was, okay? You know, it wasn't uh, an eye roll as much as it was a smirk. I mean, I was, okay, you know, fair enough. Okay, but but... I, just want, I just want you to be very clear on that. I mean, I'll just say it's like to me, when you're looking at estimates for earnings and sales to be up double digits here, um, you know, sales is expected to be up next year, fiscal 2020 up 13, 14% and earnings up 20%. And on a PE to growth, Tim might say at, you know, 27 times next year, that might be reasonable, but you have to believe that number for next year. The good news here is all that discussion about DTC, they're expected to have the highest gross margin in fiscal 2023 than they've had in a uh, decade, about 47.5% or so. And that really does speak to some of the changes that have been underfoot See what I did there for this company over the last few years. I just don't know if those out year estimates are reliable right now. All right. Coming up, a Disney dispute relationship strains between CEO Bob Iger and former head. Uh, excuse me. Between CEO Bob Chapek and former head Robert Iger. So what does that mean for the future of the company? We'll break it down next. But first, Boeing in focus after a fatal 737 crash in China. Investigators still working to discover the cause. We've got more on that next. Don't go anywhere. Fast Money's back in two. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones... Our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. 
Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. Boeing shares dropping more than 3.5% today after a Boeing 737-800 plane crashed in southern China. It was operated by China Eastern Airlines and had 132 people on board. The stock has lost more than half its value over the last three years. Uh, 3.5%. Tim, you still own this one? I do. You know, look, this is a horrible tragedy. Uh, and, and unfortunately, there's been too much of this around Boeing. Um, the big issue for Boeing out of this is one of the drivers for the stock was essentially recommissioning and redelivering Max 737s to China. And, and that was part of where analysts were getting ready to upgrade this stock. If you look at the overall airline sector as well today, like the spike in oil is really what I think is pushing down not only Boeing and airlines, but and I think they were very highly correlated today. Uh, but this is something to watch. How the Chinese government responds to this mm-hmm. is very important for the direction of Boeing stock. It seems like the response is pretty swift. I mean, China Eastern grounded all of its Boeing 737-800s immediately, and President Xi stepped in and said that he wants to know um, the cause of this. So he was calling for an investigation that was, you know, going to be very speedy. Brian Kelly, you know, Phil Bo early this morning, you know. Initially, when the news hit, he made the point that in the past, Boeing shares usually drop on the back of such news and then recover. But do you think that that playbook is still in play now? I, I don't because I think there's too many cross currents here. So, I mean, number one, you saw how swiftly you mentioned how swiftly they moved and the fact that, you know, they're going to ground all of those things that would have never happened in the past. So that's something relatively new. But secondarily, we talk about the slowing economy, slowing global economy. That's really what the driver of of Boeing is. Are you going to sell more planes? And I don't think there's going to be that demand. So I think this is a little different uh, situation here. You want to trade Boeing between, where is it, 170 and 200? As Dan would say, have at it. But I don't think you're going to have a nice trend in Boeing here. What's interesting about Boeing, and I think Tim would agree with this, at this price, I'm not saying you're totally dismissing their defense part of their company, But to a large extent, you are. I mean, this is a company that still probably do $100 billion in revenue for the year, trades about $105 billion market cap. I mean, you can start doing back-of-the-envelope math and say, at a certain point, it's too cheap. Now, the headline risk, as we've all learned, Mm -hmm. is significant. But you're going to get to a point where you almost have to buy it just for the defense portion on by itself, in my opinion. But if you wanted the defense play, you would just have a defense stock. Right. I mean, why, why would you bother? I, it, it, yes, except for the fact that it's, it's being punished as it only has a, a business selling commercial airlines uh, and aircraft into the airlines and defense is, you know, 40 ish percent of their business. So I, I hear that. And I do think that we've also had an enormous run in defense names. And I don't think Boeing got that same that same benefit. All right. We are just getting started here on Fast Money. Here's what's coming up next. A mouse house divided past and present heads of Disney falling out. Should investors fear this Disney dissension? The details are next. Plus, get ready for some heavy metal. The group hitting its highest level in over a decade. So, time to crank this trade to 11? 
The traders break it down ahead. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Fast Money. There's a battle um, going on at Disney, a new CNBC exclusive from our Alex Sherman of CNBC.com detailing the rift between current CEO Bob Chapek and his storied predecessor Bob Iger. And beyond the tension between the execs, there are growing concerns about the course the current regime is charting. Disney's had a rough go of it this year, down over 10%. Today, it dropped to just over a percent. Let's bring in a New York Times columnist who wrote the book on Disney, CNBC contributor Jim Stewart. Jim, always great to get your take on these things. Um, great. Good to, good to be with you. Is it, you, is it your sense that there is a rift going on before the men seem to be close? It was reported that they would talk almost every single day, and that just has not happened lately. Uh, no, as CNBC really has been out in front on that story. But I think um, this is really the tip of an iceberg, if you want to call it that. The, uh, the rift is just part of a much broader problem, I think, that the new management led by CEO Bob Chapek is confronting at Disney. There have been growing morale problems, uh, op- ever more open criticism of some of the management decisions that were, have been made, these constant reshufflings of executive lines of authority, and then finally culminating in this uh, fiasco over the uh, don't say gay law in Florida, which has now managed to alienate pretty much everybody. It is, um, I think, a growing cause for concern among many investors about uh, after years of a very smooth, well-oiled managed machine there, a company that in some ways looks like it might be going off the rails. Would it be too big of a jump to say that perhaps Bob Chapek's days are numbered? I, I, I wouldn't want to go there yet. Um, the After all, this board put him in place not that long ago. To, to now decide they need to replace him would be essentially um, admitting that they made a monumental mistake. Uh, and I don't know that the, the, the data is there yet to take such a pre- precipitous step. But something has got to change there. I mean, I have been hearing now for months from many of my sources in Disney about the mounting dismay and the dissatisfaction there. The, the sort of the tone-deaf quality coming out of the executive suite um, the, the, the decisions that, you know, have really caused really morale issues. Take the decision to move the um, Imagineers from Southern California to Florida to save uh, $500 million over 20 years. People on the outside, I think, don't understand. The, the Imagineers, that is the heart of the Disney company. That, that was Walt Disney's personal baby. And they're highly creative, highly respected within the company, and they're all extremely upset about this. And while the money sounds good, when you realize it's $500 million over 20 years, that's $25 million a year in savings. Really, for a company like Disney, that's barely a rounding error. And it has created this um, massive dissatisfaction there. 
Hey, Jim, it's Tim Seymour. Uh, hear you on that, and certainly that, that kind of dysfunction at the top could hinder the creative process. But quickly, as you look at the studio and you look at the release schedule and the slate and really what is uh, this powerful flywheel dynamic for Disney into their distribution and their theme parks, how are you assessing the next 12 months? Well, I think one of the I think they are they have been performing very well. I mean, the, the recent earnings uh, were quite good. The, the stock has not responded for, for reasons, I think, that go beyond the immediate earnings issues. But I think the company has been working well. The problem is that um, that, you know, that the creative thing is the is the heart of the company and. There is no more industry than Hollywood entertainment that depends on relationships. And Bob Iger was the master of that. He could take a star, a director, a studio executive to lunch or dinner, and they always came out feeling great about it. Um, It's going to be hard to replace him in that respect. But Chapek has not shown that interest in or affinity for the creative people that fuel that pipeline into Disney. And many of these recent successful projects have their roots, you know, years ago. And Iger himself continued to play a very big role in the creative process until he left, finally, not that long ago. So uh, I think that this is one of the things that people worry most about, which is Chapek's relationship to the creative community. Any chance maybe that Bob Iger could come back down the road? I mean, we just saw it with... uh between Kevin Johnson and Howard Schultz, so it's making everybody think, <laughs> bring back the, the storied predecessor. Well, you know, I would never say never. I think that's an unlikely scenario. Um, Bob had a long run there, very, very successful. I'm not sure that he would want to step back in, except on maybe a very short-term basis. But there is, and again, I, I don't think the board is anywhere near replacing Chapek at this point, but there are uh, candidates out there. I mean, Disney has a long tradition of promoting from within, but in um, their former COO, Tom Staggs, and uh, Kevin Mayer, who was the architect of their very successful streaming strategy on which they've now pinned the company, they do have two former executives sitting out there who would certainly seem to be very viable replacements should they reach the decision that they need Mm -hmm. to do that. But by no way am I suggesting that the board is at the point of getting rid rid of their, you know, recently handpicked choice as CEO. Yeah. Jim, always great to speak with you. Thank you for your time. Thank you. James Stewart of The New York Times. Guy, what's Disney's biggest problem? I think that's exactly their biggest problem, the fact that now they have the bullseye on their back and the market's shooting first and asking questions later. That's a big problem. What's really working for them, go back to February 9th, look at that first quarter. Dollar seven, I think they came out, I think 30% better on EPS than the street was looking for. Stock closed that day at 147, it was 160 like this. Gave it all back for a myriad of different reasons. But I would submit for the first time in a while, especially at this price, I think you can make a case for Disney just on valuation alone, For the first time in the last few years, Disney, the D in my dawn trade, as you know, and I'm going to stand by that. I think Mm. the second half of the year could be great for the stock. Yeah. Dan, your take? 
Yeah, I mean, the stock's in a really tough spot. If you look at the low in the pandemic in 2020 to its recent high last year, it's right at the midpoint from 80 to 200. It's back near 140 here, and it just doesn't seem like there's much of a direction. And I would just say this to your question to Jim about whether Iger comes back. Mel, I mean, if this guy, Chapek, makes a couple more moves that, uh, you know, let's make no mistake about it. This got to be Iger's board. He just left as the chairman here. Iger's coming back. He is a legendary CEO. He probably did three of the best deals in the history of media, and that's Lucas, Marvel, um, and Pixar. And that's the sort of mojo that you would put back in place before you'd go to a Stags or a Kevin Mayer or something like that. So to me, Iger comes back, any more problems, but I think the stock's in a tough spot for a little bit. I mean, Iger comes back and the stock goes up what, Brian Kelly? But can the stock stay there? Because is it, is it just a problem at the top or is it a real you know, deep problem in terms of the direction of Disney and how it's being run? Yeah, well, well, if, if you change, if Iger comes back, then it's going to be run like it was before. I actually think the stock sets up pretty well here because all of this dirty laundry's out there. Uh, you know, at, what is it? Sunlight is the best disinfectant. Pick your cliche, but this is all out there now, right? So any positive note, whether it's JPEG doing something different, Iger coming back, them picking somebody else, anything actually gets this stock higher, I think. So for a trade, and I would say for a trade only, you could probably buy it here against 130 as your stock. Okay, Tim, the shareholder, who do you want to see as CEO? Ooh, I, I tell you what, all the points on Iger are accurate. Um, I, I think Chapek, I want to see him still stay in that chair. I, that, that would signify way too much tumult uh, at Disney. I, I recognize there may be a culture change. That happens all the time. Uh, they've also restructured the entire company, I mean, you, and, and, and they had to. So around their distribution platforms and, and, and versus their content. So uh, let's give this one some time. I own the stock. I don't think it's expensive. It's not cheap. All right, coming up, a tale of two banks, Wells Fargo and J.P. Morgan, traveling two different paths over the past year. One of our traders is sounding a warning call on one of these names. we got the details next. Plus, the trade goes to 11. The XME metals and mining ETF surging to its highest level in more than a decade. We are digging into that when Fast Money returns. Get your trades to go with the Fast Money podcast. Catch us anytime, anywhere. Follow today on your favorite podcasting app. We're back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. The heavy metal trade is, well, rocking. And take a look at the XME, the metals and mining ETF trading at levels not seen since August 2011. Shares of Century Aluminum, Uranium Energy Corp, and Alcoa leading the way. BK, you've been in the uranium space. You are out now? Yeah, you know, unfortunately, I sold uh, most of my position last Friday, but I'll be looking to get back into uranium for a couple different reasons. I mean, number one, the reason why it was up today is Russia said they were likely going to uh, rem- not going to export any more uranium. But ultimately, the solution to all of Europe's energy problems and frankly, all of the U.S. and the world's energy problems, if you want to go green, you can't go green without yellow yellow cake, that is. Uranium's the solution, and there's not a lot of it around. So I still like the uranium trade. I'll be buying on a pullback. So what's the blue? Anyway, Tim, 
Well, Where are you on the trade? CCJ, uh, Kamiko is one way to play. It's the pure U.S. way to play. We talked about this story on Friday. I've been talking about it now for, for a month, uh, really since Russia invaded Ukraine, because today, as Brian pointed out, was the day. Friday, we had Secretary Granholm point out that the U.S. needs to actually provide more aid and more supplies to U.S. enrichment. Um, we heard from Russia today they are going to ban Russian uranium exports. So I think this story continues. Diversified miners, BHP, Rio Tinto. BHP is the one that didn't blow itself up back in 2008 and 9. I think is the best vertically integrated, uh, you know, multi-factor diversified mining company. I'll call it went to 92, back down to 71, back to $90. I still think it's in a trade of levels we last saw in 07. We had the general on, I think, last week when U.S. Steel reported. Tim was on as well. We talked about earnings. I think collectively we said, you know what, don't get caught up in an earnings story. It's not about earnings. It's about your belief that they're going to continue to operate well in this environment where steel prices continue to go higher. Look at what U.S. Steel has done since Melissa Lee. Does it matter that energy prices have spiked so much when it comes to the miners as an input cost? It's, it's an input cost, but, but again, they're so levered to the underlying price of their commodity, and, and I don't think these are dropping. I think you, you've had some ag response. You will have some ag response, I think, with some of the metals uh, and certainly the PGMs. I don't think you can see that type of a, of a supply response, even though the best thing for higher commodity prices is higher commodity higher, prices. Higher Mel, prices. before we go, and I know we got to go to break, are you a fan She's of this is Spinal Tap? And don't make the face at me. Are you a Nigel Tufnell person? Sure. Yeah, I know you. I know you were. By the way, folks, go to your local blockbuster over this weekend and rent this a Spinal Tap. You won't be disappointed. Get Back your you. Betamax out. Yeah, please. Coming up, financial fork in the road. Shares of Wells Fargo and J.P. Morgan going in different directions this year. But do the charts tell the whole story? The bank trade is next. Plus, cloudy with a chance of options. Some software M&A action as traders betting on moves in another big player. We got the details from Fast Money Returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Call it a tale of two banks, Wells Fargo and J.P. Morgan, heading in wildly different directions over the past year. Wells is up nearly 30 percent, while J.P. Morgan is down 10 percent. Dan, you pointed this out. Yeah, I mean, Mel, one of the things that sticks out to me here is just that, you know, Wells is up 7 percent on the year. It's down 15 percent from its recent high. J.P. Morgan acts very, very differently, in my opinion. It started going down precipitously after that Q4 report. I know investors were very disappointed about some of their expenses. But since then, since the war, I think the focus on their exposure internationally is one of the reasons that's weighing on this stock. They get 23 or 4 percent of their sales from overseas, whereas Wells Fargo gets none. And that might be one of the reasons for the relative outperformance year to date of Wells. But going back to that first discussion that we had about a yield curve inverting, about mortgage rates going higher, about rates going higher, Wells is very exposed to U.S. consumer here. So this one might look a little bit like a value trap on a price to book. It's trading about 1.1 versus, let's say, um, JP and Bank America near 1.4-ish or something like that. So to me, keep an eye on Wells Fargo. If it were to lose that relative outperformance, that might be telling you something about what's going on here in the U.S. as it relates to the consumer and maybe expectations for the balance of the year. So this is really one of our most favorite games that we play Ooh. here on Fast Money. Value trade or value trap, Ooh. Brian Kelly. So how would you characterize Wells Fargo? Oh, I would call that a value trap for sure. For all the things that Dan pointed out, I think it is benefiting from its relative insulation from the outside world where J.P. Morgan, we know even just last week, it was uh, revealed that they were the largest counterparty to the nickel 
uh, trade that went bad. So that is that is going to be a headwind for J.P. Morgan stock. But that does not mean that Wells Fargo is in a better place. Like we said, when you look further out on the yield curve, it is flattening out. That's not a great environment uh, for for banks as well. If you look at some of the investment grade bonds, uh, those yields are going up. Maybe there's some default risk being priced in there. I, again, think that is what makes it a trap rather than a trade or whatever the value thing that you said it was. Trap or trade? Fade it? I don't know. Speaking of nickel, they just canceled a bunch of a bunch of trades again. A second round of trades got canceled on this exchange. Extraordinary. And we, you know, it sets a horrible precedent. And we haven't seen this before. This is a major concern, and it looks like they can almost do whatever they want, which is not why you're at an exchange. No, markets are broken. I mean, when that, something like that happens, I mean, that's a 147-year-old exchange, I believe. First time in the history something like that happened. And I won't play the game, but what I will say is mm. in January of 2020, before everything cratered, J.P. Morgan was making an all-time high of about $138. Past resistance becomes support, and we are there now. So I actually think you could be long J.P. Morgan off a 20% mm. sell-off at current levels. All right, let's take another look at Nike here. Sarah Eisen's been listening to the calls, got the latest. Sarah. Hi, Melissa. I can share with you the guidance, which should come as a relief for investors. That is, they're sticking with their numbers for 2022. They expect revenues to be up mid-single digits. They expect that the gross margins will expand at least 150 basis points. Both of those things they had said previously in the December quarter. The only thing a little bit different is SG&A growth. So their costs are going to grow in the mid-teens. And that was actually better than the mid to high teens, which is what they had before. So a lot of concern going in that they would have to change numbers given the increased shutdowns in China over COVID, the supply chain delays. They actually strike a tone of optimism, the Nike executives, that is, saying that those things are improving. They said all the Vietnam, Vietnam factories are back online, that inventory is beginning to improve though transit times are a little bit longer. And as for the all-important China question, the CFO, Matt Friend, just now on the call said that they expect to see another quarter of sequential improvement in China. They do expect to see a decline in North America for this coming quarter, but that's because of tougher comparisons. And then next quarter is their, their last fourth fiscal fourth quarter of the year. So they said, looking ahead to 2023, they remain optimistic that it's going to be another year of growth, but they're going to give a little more color on that in the next quarter. So overall, Melissa, I would say a much more confident projection. And the only other piece of news I'll add is that the business remains shut down in Russia and Ukraine. Uh, The CFO communicated that's less than 1% of total company revenue. And then if you've been watching Foot Locker stock lately, you've noticed the big declines. Nike did confirm in this call that they have cut 50% of their wholesale accounts just over the last few years or so as they have really re-looked at that business and focused on direct-to-consumer. They said that the communication, though, is finished with those big account pivots. And now they're going to look forward to collaborating a little bit more. So maybe some, some pain ease there at the footlockers of the world who were worried about Nike cutting off these accounts. But that has happened on a large scale. I'll send mm. it back to you. Yeah, we see the reaction, the after hour session. Uh, Sarah, thank you. Sarah Eisen. Um, so basically, they're sticking by their numbers for the current quarter, Tim, but not setting any sort of bar for the next year since their year ends in the next 
in this current quarter. And they just talked about, though, their fiscal Q4 mm-hmm. coming. Uh, the cops are very difficult and that they're going to be down somewhat. Very much uh, relief, as it sounds, in terms of inventories and supply in different geographies that are thawing um, and the concerns that they have on China. I mean, these are all things that we knew. And again, China was down 5 percent last quarter as it looks to this quarter. Doesn't sound like they're terribly optimistic there either. So is this just everything's fine? I don't think everything's fine at all, but I think you got another 5 to 6%. BK, I think, would reiterate that as well. That 145 level will be resistance. Now, you could say inventory is up 15% year over year. That's a good thing against 5% sales growth year over year. Yeah, the flip side of that coin is you have an inventory build and you don't have the demand on the back of it, you're going to hurt margins. So I think you can continue to own the stock for another 7 bucks ish from current levels. But then I think in trading parlance, it's a French word, you sell the double. You sell the no. Yeah, you've Double. learned that over the years. That's not really Nobody inside talks baseball. like that anymore. That's false. Patently false. I just <laughs> said it, so by definition, that's false. You say it, not people in general. Um, Brian Kelly, what Sarah had mentioned about cutting off some of the distribution channels, that's really interesting. Karen Feinerman, the chairwoman, has been in that trade for a long time and had signaled you know, some concern about Foot Locker, and here we are. We're actually hearing it from Nike itself. Yeah, exactly. That's just another headwind for any of these retailers out there. But I I actually found this Nike report, this Nike conference call to be relatively positive, I think. They're saying, listen, things aren't going to be as bad as everybody expected. And I think it feeds into that more broader equity narrative that, hey, listen, Fed's going to crush inflation in a very short period of time, which I think is false. But that's what the equity market thinks. And then everything's going to be okay because the consumer's still strong. That's basically what Nike just told you. So I think, you know, I agree with Guy. You can own this for a little bit more. It's a trade. Uh, I think you'd be all right. So, Dan, just a quick question. Is Nike a bellwether or is it an exception? How, how do we read this news? No, I, I think that's a good point. I think it is a bellwether, and I think it always trades at a premium, and it will trade at a premium. And I just think that, you know, it's down an awful lot. I think at its lows just recently it was down maybe 26, 27% from its highs uh, made last year. So the question is, is just whether you believe that Q4 is going to come in the way that they just guided. I suspect it's a disappointment. And then Q1 is also going to be kind of murky. So to me, I just probably think near term, get it up to 145, maybe take some profits and look for a, a lower end. Coming up, cloud options, a big deal in the software space with options traders eyeing another big name. We'll tell you how they're playing this one when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out the huge move in Anaplan, the cloud stock in agreement to be bought by private equity firm Toma Bravo. The deal sparking a flurry of options activity. Mike Coe is with us with the action. Mike. Yeah, if you had known about Anaplan, what would you have wanted to do if you were trading options? The thing is, you expect the stock to rise, but then you expect it to cease to exist after the cash buyout. So basically, you want to buy near-dated calls and sell out-of-the-money long-dated calls. And that's exactly what we saw in Coupa Software, which traded more than two and a half times its average daily options volume. The trade that caught my eye was a purchase of 1,000 of the April 115 calls. Those were trading for about $2.30. That same buyer then sold 1,000 of the January 2023 175 strike calls for $4.40 a contract. They were collecting premium, trying to take advantage of that dynamic, maybe making a similar bet to what we saw in Anaplan. Thanks, Mike. Options Action Full Show, Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Up next, Final Trade.
Take a look at the final trades for this Monday evening. Thanks for watching Fast. See you back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast. Meantime, Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.